today, another must-win game for the Canucks, this time against the lowly Coyotes. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, and my co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, who of course also covers the team at the Athletic Canucks Hour, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, Drancer, as much as, you know, this game and every game until they're actually out of it is a must-win, and, of course, the game against on Tuesday against the Golden Knights was also a must-win, okay, sure, they're both must-wins in a sense, but... I think the dynamic of this game tonight obviously is very, very different considering, you know, on Tuesday you're playing a Vegas Golden Knights team that you're chasing in the standings that is also desperately trying to chase down a playoff spot and eke out every point they can. And in tonight's game you have, uh, you know, an Arizona Coyotes team which is uh, not quite as intimidating as that Vegas Golden Knights lineup. Let's put it like that. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> Um, I want to spotlight and begin our conversation today by reading this tweet from the Disco Stew on Twitter. Um, Tonight, he says, is the perfect night for Louis Erickson to pour salt in our wounds with a huge game that ends any faint hopes of a playoff berth. And I love this tweet with all my heart. And not just because I'm the negative guy, right? Not just because, like... That's my dream come true, because it's not by any means. I have no desire to see uh, all the work that these Canucks players have have put in under Bruce Boudreaux over the past four or five months come to an end like that. That sounds terrible, but it speaks to a level of fatalism that Canucks fans have long had inherent in their experience, right? This franchise is one of the losingest franchises in the history of the NHL over a large sample when you look at point percentage in the marketplace of vancouver since the nhl opened here in the 1970-1971 season uh no other team that has never won a stanley cup has lost a stanley cup final game seven um except for the vancouver canucks franchise which has done it twice right there is this old sense of like gallows humor among canucks fans and i feel like somehow somewhere along the way just in the past you know, 24, maybe 30 months. And I don't know if it's just the conversation on Twitter or just in our text inbox, but I feel like somewhere along the way, that sense of impending doom, right? That like, we know bad things are going to happen. We're Canucks fans. The point is to enjoy it together, right? Uh, Somewhere along the way, I feel like that's gotten lost. And I saw that Disco Stew tweet and it just made me lighten up because it was just like the most Canucks fan tweet i've ever seen and i'm so here for that i'm so here for that you know sense of wincing ahead (laughs) of a game that is surely a free two-point night for the canucks right i mean you've got the vegas golden knights playing the juggernaut calgary flames right you've got the dallas stars playing the rough tough and physical minnesota wild you've got the nashville predators facing connor mcdavid right and the canucks play veg melka and the arizona coyotes yeah and this has to be a free two points for the Canucks. And yet, if you've watched this franchise for long enough, you know, you know that until the buzzer sounds on 60 minutes or until the Canucks are up 5-1 with 10 minutes to play, you know 
something can always happen well, in hockey. And just even this team this season, Trancer, right? There, there's been those moments where coming off a high, then all of a sudden there's an inexplicable low that follows it up, right? And the game against Vegas certainly was an emotional high for the players. I mean, we saw how they reacted after Quinn Hughes scored that goal. Uh, you know, it wasn't everything the team could have hoped for because it, it got to overtime. They didn't close it out in regulation, but it was still a massive two points and a big accomplishment, uh, again, just based on how the players reacted and what we heard from them after the game. So I do think it's fair to have concerns about that drop-off that we have seen play out at other times this year. And by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alter- alter- uh, the smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your thoughts in ahead of tonight's game uh, against the Arizona Coyotes. But I, I do think it's important to note, as much as we have seen those drop-offs and those letdowns from the Canucks at other times this season... This Coyotes roster and this Coyotes team right now is in a different category than any of the other like poor teams that the Canucks have lost to this year. <laughs> it really is. It really They're is. They're in a category of their own. They are in a category <laughs> of their own. And frankly, that game that they played last week where the Canucks got a pretty comfortable win in Arizona – I thought that might have been the worst performance from a Canucks opponent this year. Like, it was dismal, dismal stuff, especially in the third period when the game was out of reach, right? It was basically glorified shinny out there for the third period. Arizona looked like they wanted absolutely no part of trying to stage any sort of comeback. And so when you look about it in look at it in that context, like this isn't just a bad bottom of the standings team. It feels like a really genuinely hopeless team in a lot of ways. Now, having said that, hey, it's still the NHL. It's still hockey. Weird things happen. Vejmelka has, you know, he's frustrated the the Toronto Maple Leafs this year, right? Like he's done it against very the good Colorado teams. Colorado Avalanche. So, so you never Multiple know the times. Colorado Avalanche. Exactly. So you never know. But you just look at how these two teams are lining up tonight, and they just the massive gap in talent between the Canucks uh, and the Arizona Coyotes. And again, this would be this would be a different type of loss than even you know the Detroit loss where they got shut out, or any of the other ones that you want to go back and look at. Because again, man, this Coyotes team is just they are in an absolutely tragic place right now. I'm going to tell you this stat. Ready? You ready? It's Please gonna, do. It's going to make it's it's going to make you want to cry. Ah. Over their last 10 games, the Arizona Coyotes have scored 17 goals. Yeah. 17 goals. 1.7 goals per game. Just in their last eight games, just in their last eight games, they have lost six games by at least four goals. (laughs) They've gone 6-2 loss, 6-1 loss, 5-1 loss, 5-1 loss, 5-0 loss, 6-1 loss. Those have all come in the last, like, two weeks. Two and a half weeks. Like, they're getting blown out on the regular. They haven't beat a playoff team, right? Their only wins recently have been against other teams that are just completely out of it, right? Chicago in overtime, San Jose, go back a little ways, Ottawa and Montreal. They haven't beat a playoff team since March 10th against the Leafs on the road in Toronto. And in that game, they had Jacob Chikrin and Clayton Keller in the lineup, who are not going to be in the lineup tonight, right? Like, this is just right. a, a disastrous stretch of form for the so, Arizona Coyotes. And as you said, it's it's defensive and it's offensive, right? Yeah. They've been so 17, 17 goals for, 43 against. Oh, right? my goodness. And if that sounds bad, if that sounds bad, it's not just luck. By expected goals for, 23. By expected goals against, 36. So, like, they're only 
underperforming on this dismal run. They're only underperforming like they're what we'd say in baseball, underperforming their Pythag. They're only underscoring uh, uh, or underperforming their expected goals by like, you know, a factor of 20 percent. It's brutal. It's brutal how bad this team is. They can't get saves. They can't stop um, teams from generating. And they definitely can't score unless Nick Schmaltz gets a nine-point game, which, you know, who knows? I mean, you've seen it before, right? Yeah. So uh, this is one that the Canucks cannot afford to lose. They cannot. This must be the free two points it looks like. This must be that game for this team. And look, I'm going to tell you this honestly. I think it will be. I think it will be, but any Canucks fan who's followed this team for long enough wincing ahead of this game, like, I'm with you. I love that attitude. That's that's the Canucks I know and love and grew up with. Well, and the Louis Erickson angle, right, just adds such another wrinkle and another layer to it because he has, he's become such a... A legendary, but I guess infamous figure in, in Canucks lore, right? The the Louis Erickson experience. And so I understand that attraction to it from a fatalistic point of view as well, that not only would it be one of the worst teams in the league, potentially driving a stake through your season, uh, it could have a Louis Erickson factor as well. Marcus and Gibson's Texan, is this not the biggest revenge game? Well, I get that, except again, like, First of all, Louis Erickson has played against the Canucks a bunch of times this year already, including very recently. And second of all, I, I don't know that Arizona has the spirit for revenge left in them. <laughs> like really, as we're as we're going through it, and I know you know they've beaten the Leafs this year, they've beaten Colorado this year, but they look like a team that is just done with the season that that wants to get the season done no matter what that's certainly how they looked in the last matchup with the Canucks and that's kind of I, I think that more than anything is the key for Vancouver to me tonight is don't let like don't play down not just from a talent perspective to Arizona's level but from an intensity perspective right because right. if it's up to the Coyotes this is not going to be an intense game and can, can I give you can I give you just the funniest Louis Erickson stat I love <laughs> yes please so do Okay, over the course of the 10-game stretch that we've talked about where the Coyotes have just been abysmal, right? There is only one player who has appeared in more than 70% of those 10 games who has been on the ice for more shots for than shots against for the Coyotes. And, of course, it's, you know, um, um, we need a hero, Louis Erickson. Who, who, with hit, Louis Erickson on the ice at 5-on-5, five five, the Coyotes have outshot their opponents. There you go. 55-54. I love that. That brings a smile to my face. He's doing, he's, uh, he's doing those little things, Drancer. And he is. He, I, and, and, it's, and it matters. I will say... Uh, <laughs> I will say, I, I don't have the stats in front of me now, but going into the game last week, uh, Louis Erickson has quietly racked up a very uh, a decent assist per 60 at even strength rate, and we were comparing it to some of the Canucks forwards. And uh, yeah, Louis, Louis Erickson's in front of some people you would probably prefer that he not be in front of on the Canucks roster, and I'll just leave it at that. But on, on the right team, on the right team, as like a defensively calibrated fourth liner penalty killer for 750K, I, I think Louis Erickson could help. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. It's true. At, at the end of the day, he's so strong on his stick and he's so reliable defensively that I think he could help you at a very, very low cost. Like, I think he could help a good team win games in the right role at the right price. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I mean, as much as we joke about the little things, like, that it wasn't a completely yeah exactly it wasn't a completely <laughs> ridiculous notion right like th those things exist and he did execute them it was there's so much else that you could complain about but 
Travis Green didn't make up that concept just to defend Louis Erickson, right? He didn't pull it out of thin air. But I mean, I do think as much as we can kind of defend, in a sense, Louis Erickson's record and his current utility as an NHL player, I mean, I think the fact that, as you're pointing out, he's also been arguably one of the team's best forwards over a 10-game stretch, like that says a lot more about what the the Coyotes are running out there right now uh, than it does about Louis Erickson, in a sense. And again, I just don't think the Canucks can let this be, you know, 0-0 after the first period, right? Like, don't let this turn into just a flat, <laughs> dull... After the first five minutes! Yeah, like a flat, <laughs> dull, lifeless affair. Don't get sucked in to that game, that style of game that the Coyotes want to play, right? Or that they have to play because of who's on their roster. Like, come out... In the as you said, in the first five minutes, and let everyone know which team has something to play for, which team has you know all star caliber talent in the lineup, and put your stamp on this game. Because frankly, I don't think the Coyotes are going to have the will to muster much of a comeback, right? Like if the Canucks come out of the gates on fire and they let everyone know, hey, we're going to take charge of this game, I, I don't see a Coyotes outfit that's going to really try to you know rally and find and and dig deep to battle back. I mean, I don't disagree, although one thing to note is the Coyotes have a couple of young players that they traded for, signed out of college, and are now in the lineup playing for them. Guys like Jack McBain, guys like Nathan Smith. Maybe you get a little bit of a boost there. The other thing to note is for the Coyotes, you know, the Coyotes are basically built on expiring contracts, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not just it's not just that they made the trade with Vancouver that we all know and have talked about ad nauseum this season. They've also, you know, made those trades with, you know, the Florida Panthers. So you've got Anton Strallman in the lineup, right? Expiring vet. You've got a lot of guys who, you know, are going to care about a game in a high-profile hockey market because it's a it's a showcase. It's a chance to show the rest of the league what you can do. And, and for these Coyotes players, you've got this game in Vancouver and this game in Calgary. And, you know, those games matter. They're going to be watched by more yeah. people. They're going to be watched by more scouts. Like, there is, you know, an element to which if you're a, you know, a, a guy like a, you know, Nick Ritchie who, hope you know, hopes to be traded to a more relevant team next season, for example, like, tonight matters. If you're a guy like Anton Strallman or, or Erickson or, or Beagle or what have you, um, you know, it matters. Like, it does. And so... Um, we'll see how this plays out. But yeah, I mean, I think the Coyotes are massively overmatched. I think it's going to take an act of God and, and, or Vegmelka <laughs> for the Coyotes to take these two points. And, you know, Vancouver cannot give it to them. Like, they cannot have another one of those, um, you left us for dead and we showed you were wrong. And now we've just yeah. got this game against the Coyotes. And oh boy, this is going to be easy let down game. Like, that can't happen again. It cannot Cannot. And and he, I'm, t I'm telling you right now, in my opinion, it won't. Yeah, I look. And That's right. I'm predicting a positive outcome for the Canucks tonight. <laughs> You're really going up on the limb predicting that they're going to beat this Coyotes <laughs> team. <laughs> it's a real hot take from Thomas Drantz right there. But I, I think the point about the Coyotes as individuals still having something to play for, it is an important one because as much as you want to look at this game and think it's, you know, a 95% chance that the Canucks win – we know those games don't really exist in hockey. It is no, such a chaotic, 75%. yeah, it's such a chaotic random sport. So you do have to 
tone that kind of percentage down a little bit. But within that framework of, you know, the NHL inherently being chaotic, this is about as close to a, oh, okay, they have to win this game. I don't see a path to victory for the other team as it gets. And again, just kind of going through the matchup, you know, I would say at a minimum, at a bare minimum, the Canucks have the four best skaters in the game, right? Patterson, Hughes, Miller, Horvat. Then, of course, you had Demko. So you've got the five best players in the game, kind of no doubt about it. Of course, with Arizona not having Clayton Keller, not having Jacob Chikrin. And again, I mean, I can't think of another matchup this year where the Canucks have had clearly the five best players in the game. Like, again, go back to the Detroit game. You know, Dylan Larkin's on that team. Mo Sider's on that team. They have real star players uh, with a lot of upside. You can go through basically every other team in the league, and, and that's something similar. But in this one, I mean, you have the best players. And usually we go into a game saying, oh, if you have the the number one best player on the ice, right, you've got a shot to win. If you have the best goalie and the best player, you've got a shot to win. Well, you've got the four best skaters and the best goalie in this one. So you should have a lot more of it a shot to win. It should be ultimately a pretty comfortable victory from that perspective. Yeah, there's only like three or four Coyotes that would dress in the lineup for Vancouver. And this is a Vancouver team, you know, playing Kyle Burroughs uh, at right wing. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's where we're at. That's where we're at. The Coyotes, the, their laundromat rebuilding approach, this is the pain that they are going through to set up what they hope is a brighter future, uh, you know, hopefully played in a real NHL barn. Um, this is their pain. This is their pain moment. Uh, for the Canucks, meanwhile, this is an all-in moment, right? Like, this was the team built to make the playoffs this year, fighting for a chance to make the playoffs. And I know it hasn't gone the way anyone drew it up, uh, lots of jobs were lost along the way. Uh, a whole new direction is is currently being charted by a disparate, uh, diverse management group constructed under Jim Rutherford's leadership. And, you know, the stakes could not be more different for these two sides. And yet, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it remains like, at the end of the day, the Canucks could well come out of this looking like if you look at the NHL standings page, they're pretty close to a playoff berth, but they're, they will remain an extreme long shot. Even if they're the out of town scoreboard breaks their way and they take these two points from Arizona, you know, they could wake up tomorrow, one point back of Vegas, um, you know, four back of, of Los Angeles and four back of Dallas. And, and they'd have games in hand on the, on the LA Kings uh, or a game in hand anyway yep. on the LA Kings as they look through uh, that math. And yet with all the teams still engaged in this anchorman knife fight for the final wildcard spot in the Pacific or, or perhaps the third spot in the Pacific division, sorry, the, so the wildcard spot in the West or the third, third spot in the Pacific division, you know, it would be a bit of a false dawn, right? Not that this game doesn't, matter a ton doesn't have a ton of leverage for the Canucks a win and some favorable results could probably get them back up to something like a one in ten maybe a little bit better one in nine shot at the playoffs but it's going to look closer if things break the Canucks's way than it actually is and so while I think the Canucks will have a positive outcome out of tonight um, and while I think the out-of-town scoreboard shapes up relatively favorably for them like I'd expect them to get some help somewhere um, maybe not everything they want, but something that they want. I think that it's very important to realize that even if things break their way in a significant way, likely to be a false dawn, 
heading into an, a fascinating slate next week, especially with that back-to-back looming against Dallas and Ottawa. Well, and ultimately what it comes down to for the Canucks is, look, the scoreboard watching is important because at a certain point you need those teams to lose, right? It's not as if they're all playing each other a bunch of times and that there will naturally be points dropped you do need those teams to lose but the other side of it is you also just have to find a way to get to bare minimum 96 points right and you're at 82 and you only have eight you only have eight games remaining so do the math yourself and if you don't take care of your own business then the Edertown scoreboard isn't going to matter that much right so as you point out even if Dallas loses tonight even if you know Vegas loses tonight right we saw LA not a big surprise here get absolutely blown out in Colorado in you know arguably one of the well not arguably I would say clearly the hardest game you can have on your schedule right back to back going into Colorado on the road those things are good they have to happen but also the Canucks one way or another need to find a way to get to 96 97 or 98 points which basically means you're looking at a maximum dropped points uh, of two over the final eight games and yeah as you said for all the reasons we're laying out it absolutely cannot come against the Arizona Coyotes team tonight I I know you've been higher on uh the LA Kings than some people right there's been this kind of sense of uh uh-oh you know LA is sliding are they are they going to choke this one away to the Vegas Golden Knights and it's easy to look at that that scoreline last night and say oh boy uh uh-oh here we go again for LA but I mean to me I look at that and while I do have some concerns because of LA's injury troubles right now I also just kind of chalk that one up to hey you're on the second leg of a back-to-back to Colorado like that's going to happen a certain percentage of the time yeah, I mean, I think this is like a, a pretty common thing that happens in my uh, overall analysis of teams across the board where, you know, I tend not to react too significantly to runs of poor play that in L.A.'s case anyway are being driven primarily by um, are being driven primarily by a run of really, really bad goaltending. Right. Um, you know, you're looking at a Kings team that has only won one of their past four games and is playing pretty well. I mean, I don't see a ton wrong with their overall approach or underlying profile across those games. Um, You know, they're coming out even, they're usually coming out ahead. Maybe there's a few too many quality chances being surrendered, but the, the reason they're losing is that they've got 833 goaltending at five on five. And it's not like a... Vegmelka Hari Sateri tandem thing where I'm like, well, that might just be what they are, right? It's not even a Mike Smith, Nick, uh, uh, Miko Koskinen. Uh, Koskinen thing. I want to call him Nico Koskinen, which is way cooler. Um, but no, it's not even like that where you're like, oh boy, like they might not be able to turn that around. Um, you know, Cal Peterson and Jonathan Quick, I'm not saying they're elite, but they're average. They're at least they're they're at least competent as a tandem. And so I look at that Kings team. I see some really good performances. I see two really tough matchup centermen. I see a super easy schedule the rest of the way. And I say, you know, yes, this one in four stretch hurts them, but I, I just don't see them fading to the point that, you know, a, a Vancouver could catch them. Maybe Vegas, maybe, but I, I just don't see Vancouver sort of, Think about it. Think about what needs to happen for Vancouver to pass uh, L.A., right? L.A. would need to do worse than three and three and Vancouver would need to go six, one and one. Right. Yeah. And sorry, sorry. Even if they do that, they finish a point back. So they need to do better than six, one and one, presuming that L.A. can go three and three the rest of the way. 
well, I think LA hold can on, go no, no, three no. the rest of the way. If LA goes three and three and they're all regulation they're losses, at 94 they'll points, be at ninety four. Right? And six one and one gets the Canucks to ninety five. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. So so flip it. So basically so, LA uh, needs to go like four and two and they'll feel really comfortable if they do that. Yeah, or three one even, and you know but even three and three, it's going to make it very yeah. difficult for Vancouver to catch them, right? Maybe Vegas, yeah. maybe, especially if Vegas can beat the Flames tonight. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm picking the Kings to beat McDavid if they may, if they are the third seed in the Pacific come playoff time. Uh, I'm not picking them to win around. I'm not calling them a world beater, although I do like them and have liked them more all season than just about any analyst you'll find. I just don't think their fi- last five games are. Um, like the tip of an iceberg on a team that's about to collapse. I, I think this team is good enough to weather the storm and go roughly 500 and give themselves a real shot at being the third team in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, this is something that I do occasionally, and then I get dunked on for like a couple weeks while the team continues to struggle, and then, and then in fact, they turn around. I mean, you know, uh, the Edmonton Oilers are fine was a take that I got a lot of guff for uh, in midseason, uh, but I think that's aged relatively well. And, of course, you can ask Jason Bruff about my Maple Leafs are fine take in, uh, <laughs> in early October and, and what? They're going to finish with 110 points. So, um, you know, I, I, just, I just sort of tend not to react too much to small samples. I don't even react that much to 50 game samples sometimes if, if what's occurred isn't matched by the underlying numbers. And ask any Canucks fan, they'll tell you that. <laughs> about my continued skepticism about this team, despite their, you know, fringe top 10 record under Bruce Booth. And, and I think ultimately for LA, their saving grace is going to be their schedule, right? Like C- Columbus, Anaheim, Chicago, Anaheim, Seattle, Vancouver is how they finish things off. And I, I just think they will find a way to scratch out enough points one way or another over that remaining schedule to make it in to the playoffs. But you never know, right? And And again, the Canucks, they certainly... If they win out, if they you know only find a way to drop one point or two points or something, they're going to be right there at the end of the year as well. We will update you about the Canucks lineup for tonight ahead of the game against Arizona. Continue taking your texts as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots of great Louis Erickson texts coming in that I want, <laughs> I oh, want to get it. to. People love to talk about Louis Erickson still in this city to answer, so I, don't, I want to get to a bunch of those. Uh, and make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a five-star rating and review as well. More coming up on the other side. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Back to the show. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650 on a Canucks game day. They're going to take on the Arizona Coyotes coming up at 7 o'clock tonight. Of course, you can hear all day game day coverage right here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, you know, Drancer, we were uh, we were dragging the Coyotes lineup through the mud in that first segment a little bit. But talking about Louis Erickson and, oh, man, we have, we've been over so much ground with Louis Erickson here in this city. But as you were pointing out, you know, by, by shots, the shot metrics, even as Arizona is getting absolutely demolished on a nightly basis, somehow Louis Erickson is keeping his head above water uh, for the Coyotes recently. And, 
we got this text that came in uh, from Snoop the Dog. If Louie would accept a league minimum deal, would you be against bringing the empty net killer back next season to run the fourth line and PK? And my favorite part of that text from Snoop the Dog is not just to have him be a part of, you know, the fourth line and the penalty kill, but bring back Louie Erickson to run the fourth line and the penalty, penalty kill. Make it his domain. Uh, and Snoop, I love the idea. Uh, I love that, you know, you're willing to give Louie a second chance and welcome him, welcome him back potentially to the Canucks. But no, I would not do that. Not because of Louie even as a player necessarily, but just because uh, of the history involved between the two parties. But hey, if I was another team around the league, would I bring Louie in on a, a PTO and see if he can help my bottom six? Sure, why not? Yeah, another team. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not, not the Canucks. Canucks. <laughs> not <laughs> the Canucks. <laughs> 100% not the Canucks. Um, you know, there's no one wins. No one wins. No one that. wins. Dude, I, and like, I, here's on. the thing. Louis doesn't want that. Like, there, this is the last place he wants to come back to, I can only imagine. Uh, I mean, it, too much water under the bridge. But exactly. Louis Erickson could help. Louis Erickson could help somebody. For sure. For sure. Somebody for sure. Yeah. Uh, Ryan in the Ridge texts in, here's my fun fact on Louis. Uh, Alex Chason's 10 goals is two more than Louis scored in his last three seasons with the Canucks. Uh, that was an $18 million cap hit over three seasons for Louis, $13 million in actual salary uh, versus just under a 900000 cap hit. Uh, and so Ryan says that is for Chason, one goal. Uh, or sorry, for Louis, it's one goal per two point two five million. For Chase on, it's one goal for every eighty seven thousand. If the two were to have similar dollar to cap output, Louis would have had, had to have scored two hundred eight goals over the last three seasons. That is Ryan in the Ridge, uh, crack um, crunching some Louis Erickson and Alex Chase on numbers for us. Uh, I think that's I, I, mean, I think that says more about the fact that Alex Chase on has been a nice cost effective depth depth option for the Canucks than anything else. Yeah, hundred percent. Because Louis Erickson was never going to score two hundred and eighty goals over the life of the contract, right? That wasn't even what he was signed to do at any point. No one even expected that. Um, you know, I feel like we need a book. You know those books that teach children about like the birds and the bees, right? Do I ever? I, I think like uh, like uh, where do babies come from? Like they don't come from storks, children, right? Um, I feel like we need a book like that except it's for hockey fans. And it's like, where do bad contracts come from? Right? Like where do bad contracts come from? And you know, the Louis Erickson career high goal season with a massively inflated shooting percentage playing as the trigger man for Marchand and Bergeron, um, you know, in his late twenties, right? 30 years old at the start of the deal. Like that's like exhibit a, that's like a hundred percent. The, you know, tactful illustration about people getting close in the in the where do um where do bad contracts come from guidebook. I want to I want to read this text because I love it and the reference is great. It says the Drancer laughs a lot like Vizzini the Sicilian from The Princess Bride, one of my all time favorite movies. And you know what happened to him? Of course, he drank poison in a Prisoner's Dilemma game. Although I hope that never happens to him. Like him too much. Thank you, Mike. That's very but, nice. But. I also feel a lot like Vizzini the Sicilian because this Canucks team, since they changed coaches, right? They're, they like keep gaining, they keep gaining. And I'm just looking back being like, it's inconceivable. <laughs> That's uh, literally my professional life since early December has basically been that of Vizzini the Sicilian's character. Um, and we'll see how it ends. <laughs> we'll see how it ends. But I actually feel like that. And that sort of, 
brings us back to one point that I that I do want to bring up, which is, you know, if the Canucks do trip over it tonight, right? If they do somehow lose to this Coyotes team, which I don't think they'll do. No. I think they'll cover. But if they do, it does cement for me 1,000% that this team's destiny is to get to 90 points in the most painful way possible for all involved. Yeah, I mean, that'll be cemented. If you were to kind of map out most plausible scenarios for how the Canucks end the season, right? Like, 90 points is is probably number one. Maybe 91 points, something like that. Like, that, that's kind of where we're trending. There's still a chance for it to get above that, but it certainly it wouldn't be a shock. And as you said, if they lose tonight, then that certainly be the the probability of that happening spikes in a big way. But even right now, like I think if a lot of people had to handicap it, they would probably have the over under for points at, you know, 91, something like that. Ninety point five right around there for the Canucks. Yeah. So 90 points in the most painful possible way. That's what's that's <laughs> yes. what's yes. A, a thousand percent on the menu in the event that the Canucks Lose tonight. Um, also, we had a text in, and I, I've, I'm sorry, I've lost it. Oh, yeah. Ross in Richmond yes. asks, is Pedersen getting five points tonight? If you set the over-under on Pedersen points at, like, 3-5, I'd be tempted. So long as so long as I was getting something like plus 350 or th- plus 300, something like that, something like 2-1, to 3-1, um, I would probably be tempted by the over. Well, he has been... So impressive recently, right? And I'm glad Ross and Richmond texted that in. He's been so impressive recently. He already feasted on this Arizona Coyotes team last week, right? If he is able to bring, you know, anything close to the same level of performance and intensity and drive that he brought to Vegas, there's no reason he shouldn't be far and away the best player on the ice tonight. And, you know, I wanted to bring this up anyways, because I do think it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of deployment Bruce Boudreaux uses tonight it's it's an unchanged lineup from the group that won against Vegas so that's uh, Miller is the first line center with Pod Colson and Chase on Horvat between Garland and Pedersen Lamico with Dickinson and Lockwood and Richardson between Sheldon Dries and Kyle Burrows playing on the right wing OEL Myers Hughes Shen Hunt and Dermott as the defense pairs so still 11 forwards seven defensemen but you look at how the ice time was allocated against Vegas and this is something we talked about in the run-up to that game you know, no surprise, Boudreaux really leaned on his his top three forwards, right? His top three uh, centers, although Pedersen's playing on the wing, in Miller, Horvat, and Pedersen. They were all up over 20 minutes, and then there was a gap between the next guys, uh, and really leaned on three defensemen in particular as well, OEL, Myers, and Hughes. And that's certainly no surprise against Vegas, where you know you don't have a depth advantage, where they have a massive depth advantage, in, in fact, on the other side, and you really had to rely on your top-end players, and ultimately that did work out for the Canucks, but I kind of think we're going to see much of the same, even against Arizona, because you can't afford to get cute with it, right? You need Elias Pettersson and JT Miller and Bo Horvat still to play a big bulk of the minutes, at least early in the game, right? And we'll see if it gets out of hand how you can allocate things uh, later on in the game. But despite the opponent you're playing, I do think you still need those guys to really step up and drive the bus and carry a heavy load tonight. Yeah, well, you definitely do. And this big three approach has been something the Canucks have needed to do on the back end for a long time. The yes. one thing I really do not want to see much of is a forward playing or a defenseman playing forward. Like, I really, I'm going to keep harping on it until we start seeing it, but just play seven defensemen, rotate them situationally, and 
double shift the top line. And I know they're already being leaned on so heavily that perhaps that's part of the reason why we haven't seen the Canucks do it. But you've got Easter weekend off. Like, you, you don't play again till Monday. Um, the shifts where any de- Canucks defenseman, whether it's been Brad Hunt or Kyle Burrows, are playing forward, like, they're painful. I find it painful to watch. I don't think it works. I don't think it helps the team. And I do think that 7D in the lineup can be an advantage if you use it right. I've seen the Tampa Bay Lightning use it right. Uh, it's scintillating. And, you know, give me some Dries Richardson Pedersen shifts. You know, I mean, we've seen we've seen that Richardson can capitalize off, you know, stellar Elias Pedersen passes. Um, that's what I want to see. I want to see them actually roll an 11-7 bench as opposed to pigeonholing a defenseman who's not well suited to playing forward into a wing spot yeah and I think one way or another you just have to find a way to make sure you're getting Patterson and Horvat and Miller out there a lot right especially when the game is close and again later on in the game in the third period hey if you want to run Burroughs out there as a winger and just roll lines make sure you manage everyone's minutes I have no problem with that, but I do think it is incumbent on the Canucks, right? They are treating these games obviously as must win, you know, akin to game sevens, right? Win or go home, that kind of thing. Well, then you have to match that with your tactics and your strategy, right? And that means, hey, I I know they're already carrying a heavy burden, but you have to go into this game with the sense of urgency that demands that you play your top players a lot of minutes. As you said, they've got a break, right? They don't play again until Monday, so you've got some time off to recover going in. Now, that is the start of a back-to-back next week, but it's that time of year. If you're going to say that these are basically playoff games, then you got to treat them like playoff games, and that means you can't be all that concerned with the minutes loads for these guys. Even I, I understand this is the era of load management, right? And in Major League Baseball, Clayton Kershaw just got pulled when he was uh, pitching a perfect game, but in this scenario, those are going to be the guys that carry you, and yet you can't be afraid of loading up their minutes however you do it. I, I agree with you. I would, I would be more in favor of double-shifting guys like Horvat, Miller, and Pedersen rather than running Burroughs out there as a right winger consistently. Um, we've got a question in, well, why can't they call up another forward? Is that not better than using defensemen as forwards, asks Reg. The fact is, too, though, that they have an extra forward up already. Yes, Nick, Nick Matan. Matan. Um, So this is a decision based on, my guess is, just keeping a lineup that's rolling together. Uh, but I'd, just, I, I'd like to see that. I, I'm fine with that. Just tweak it slightly so that you go 11-7 and, and actually truly roll it. Um, an interesting text in, does Miller look tired to you guys? I, I don't know how much chatter of this has reached your ears in the marketplace, but there seems to be a fair bit of criticism of JT Miller stemming off of the uh, performance against the Vegas Golden Knights, and I didn't think it was that bad at all. Like I thought JT Miller was totally effective. Uh, I thought he was good on the power play. I thought that line was fine. I actually think that line fared better five on five overall than the Pedersen line did. They perhaps didn't have as many dynamic moments, but would you expect Miller, Pod Colson, and Chason to have as many dynamic moments as like a trio of top line caliber forwards in Garland, Horvat, and Pedersen? Uh, for me, no. So, I mean, I thought Miller did, I think Miller's done a really good job cobbling together a top six caliber line that's had top six caliber results. Uh, despite the fact that, you know, he's not playing with any other top six caliber players, uh, as well as Pod Colson's played. I mean, the fact remains that he's not an everyday top second line quality winger yet. And so, you know, I, I think the 
Miller season is going to prove like this Canucks season quite difficult to unpack and see clearly in part because his run of production otherworldly run of production when the Canucks sort of kept their season alive for that stretch in February and March you know to me almost wasn't as impressive as what he's done the last few games even though the scoring touch hasn't been there necessarily because his two-way game has been on point. I mean, there's always going to be some of those Miller moments, like some of those giveaways, uh, but that's because he's counted on to win games. He's counted on to make plays. Players that have the puck a lot have giveaways. Like the, that line of criticism on JT Miller has never, uh, it's never, it's never sort of been compelling to me. And it remains not compelling to me. I, I'm sure JT Miller is tired. He plays defensive play, minutes. He plays an awful lot. And he plays an awful but, lot. Yeah. Yeah, but I, but he's also a pro who knows how to manage his fatigue levels, and I don't think he was even poor against Vegas. I thought he was sturdy, frankly. Um, I thought he was the, you know, linchpin of a line that controlled play probably the best of any Vancouver Canucks forward line. So, just like I thought the accolades that Miller was getting was were, were going a little far a couple months ago, I now think the scrutiny he's come under. Uh, of late has perhaps gone a little far and I'd extend that too to Connor Garland Connor Garland spoke fascinating interview you can go read it at the athletic uh, done by my colleague Harmon Dial when he was on the road uh, of course Garland playing against his former team tonight and talked about you know how difficult he's found it to get settled in a, in a new team and in a new city and you know spoke about what he'd do differently if he's back next year a relatively loaded comment and you know I brought this up yesterday but Garland's basically scored at the same clip as Elias Pettersson over the course of this run in which Pettersson's become the toast of the town again. Uh -huh. Meanwhile, Garland's kind of been the goat because of a, a scoring slump that's pure percentage-driven. Um, you know, he's drawing a ton of the power plays that the Canucks power play is converting on. He's not getting points on the power play because he's not part of PP1, although he could definitely do the job if given the shot. If you're a player that doesn't play on power play one and you get 45 50 maybe like if he gets hot he could get to 50 more likely he'll settle at about 45 points this season that's really good production like that's fringe top line production without the 25 30 point boost that you get from being on a good power play um connor garland's season is going to go into the annals of most misunderstood canucks campaigns you know alongside the likes of um you know probably Mason Raymond in 2010-11. <laughs> and I'm just trying to think of yeah. a couple other examples. Scott Lachance in 20, uh, 2003. Um, you know, just those guys who were not, their value wasn't quite understood uh, widely by the market, despite the fact that they played pretty well. And on Miller, I would say, I think it's just the fact that people are kind of asking these questions about Miller just reflects how on fire he was right after the all-star break, there was a, a six week stretch where he was just dominant and, and not just dominant, but racking up points to go along with it. And now you look at it and okay, I think he has one goal in his last seven games, but you stretch it back a little further. I mean, he has 13 points in his last 13 games, right? Like that's a point per game pace. That's really, really good. Uh, for a player of JT Miller's caliber, even like he was never going to sustain that rate he was at for that kind of peak month or six weeks earlier this year. And I think we're just kind of seeing the inevitable slowdown. But again, still a very, very effective player. It's just it's so hard to sustain the standard he was setting earlier in the season. Right. There's what well, maybe there's maybe two or three guys in the league who can do that over a full year. Yeah. And there's a reason they've been famous since they were 14. 
Right. I mean, they're the best in the world. And it it was clear they were going to be the best in the world, you know, before they could drive legally. Right. I mean, you're talking about (laughs) guys like McDavid and Austin Matthews. So um, with Miller, though, to bring this back to, you know, the, the birds and the bees book. Right. The where do bad contracts come from? Right. Where do bad contracts come from? extending a 29-year-old who will be 30 on the expiring of his current deal a year early after a season in which he produced at a rate unlike any that he's ever produced before in the NHL, that to me is, you know, the second chapter behind Louis Erickson, right? Like, that's just the second chapter. And you look through the annals of of bad contracts around this league and, you know, Jeff Skinner playing with Jack Eichel. I mean, you go down the list, like, that's the circumstances to a T where buyers have to proceed with extraordinary trepidation, right? Um, that's one of the most interesting situations that the Canucks will be stick handling this offseason up there with the Besser situation. But, you know, for me, the JT Miller one is almost higher stakes because, you know, to qualify or not to qualify Brock Besser, that's a one year, $7.5 million question, right? Um, yeah, it matters. Don't get me wrong. Seven point five million—that's a lot of money, but and and a lot of cap space. More importantly, from a Canucks perspective, but it pales in comparison with the fifty-ish million-dollar question mm-hmm. uh, of extending to extend or not to extend JT Miller for you know the majority of his his age thirty seasons, and you know uh, just just read the book. <laughs> just read the book. Just look through all the pretty pictures. Um, there's a lot of warning signs. A lot of warning signs. We'll have more time to get into that. But, oh, yeah. Uh, JT Miller's performance, I think, is coming under too much heat right now. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you should pay him for his two months where he looked like one of the best players in the league. And this text comes in. Uh, why doesn't OEL get the same benefit of the doubt as you give Garland, i.e. generally not a lot of power play time? I think that's important context when we're talking about Oliver ekman Larson's season. I think the difference... We've talked about that. Yeah, the difference with OEL was, especially early in the season, and, and it's it's changed recently uh, for Oliver ekman Larson a little bit, but especially early in the season, it wasn't just that he wasn't getting power play time. It was in his even strength minutes. He also wasn't producing at a rate, you know, not that you were expecting peak OEL, but he wasn't even getting close to what you kind of would have expected offensively. Now, again, if you're if you're digging <laughs> into there a couple weeks there, though, Jamie, where every game I'd like like say what his uh, anytime goal odds were yes. and say that he was due. Like, yeah. did we I don't know that I've been hypercritical of Oliver Ekman. Larson no, and especially season. because I the mean, other the other important piece of context with OEL was he was doing such a brilliant job defensively. Right. So I think yeah. it was pretty easy to understand, OK, is this guy sacrificing a little bit of offense to make sure he's taking care of everything offensively? And I also don't think it's entirely a fluke that in the handful of games Quinn Hughes has missed this year, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson has put up points. He's, he's getting those yeah. opportunities. He's he's adopting that offensive mentality. So Look, if we have been uh, overly critical of OEL, I, I agree with the texture that that yeah that context is important when you're evaluating his season. Yeah, we it definitely. But we've talked a lot about like workhorse running backs and and yeah. you know what are reasonable expectations for a defenseman's production if they don't play on PP one. Uh, Oliver Ekman Larson's had to adjust to a new role. It's been a conscious effort on his part. Um, he's happy to be in a market like this. He's happy to be under this type of scrutiny. This is what he wanted. He chose this. You know, if there's like one guy who hates the room being closed, right? 
who hates the fact that there's not TV cameras every day, you know, uh, circling his stall. And I don't think there's a lot of Canucks players for whom this applies, but it's OEL. He, he wanted to come to Vancouver because he wanted to be in the show in a totally different way than he got to experience for the majority of his playing career in Arizona. This is what he wants. And I think he's performed to something like the 95th percentile of what you could have reasonably expected from him this season. He had 40 games where he was an elite defensive defenseman he had about 20 games in there where he really struggled and he's rebounded to the point where he's playing really well I think on balance when you look at Oliver Ekman Larson's season what the Canucks have got out of it is bona fide second pair quality play and that's good that's yeah that's solid the problem is is that the investment made in terms of the liability that the Canucks took on which is his contract and the futures paid considering where they were in their team building cycle um didn't make sense and is something that the team's going to have to be very deliberate in navigating around, particularly because, you know, when I take you through the um, ebbs and flows of Ekman Larson's season, you know, and we've talked a little bit about load management on this program too. I think if the Canucks are going to get the best out of Oliver Ekman Larson over the long haul, they're going to need to find a second pair lefty who fits into their cap structure with a $7.26 million third pair guy because when push comes to shove, I do think, you know, if this team gets to where they want to be and is playing a meaningful, not, not meaningful games in April, but meaningful playoff games, right? You're going to want to be able to lean on Ekman Larson in 25 minutes, in 22 minutes, to hold the lead late in a playoff game. And I don't know that you get the best out of him if you're not managing his minutes pretty carefully as he gets into, you know, his mid-30s. So uh, all of that just goes to show how... You know, how reckless a bet it was, frankly, uh, considering where this team was and where this team is um, in terms of their rebuilding cycle, their team building cycle, their efforts to get themselves out of the, the mushy middle and into the elite of the NHL, which, you know, even if they performed at close to that rate under Bruce Boudreaux, I think qualitatively, it's it's relatively clear they are not there yet. It is another game day, though, for the Canucks. They have another chance to pick up a big two points tonight against the Coyotes and stay in the Western Conference playoff race. Of course, the puck drop is at 7 o'clock. All-day game day coverage continues next with the People's Show, Bick Nazar and Randeep Janda here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.